Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Avanti Security Insights Podcast. This is Chris Gettle. For those of you who haven't been on the show before, I'm the Vice President of uh, Product Management for Avanti's Endpoint Security Products. This includes a variety of our security solutions, like our client security solutions around patch and uh, mobile security solutions around like mobile threat defense and other things like that. And uh, in general, I'm just an evangelist who is into the security space. Joining me on the podcast is our very own Daniel Spicer. Daniel, introduce yourself for those who haven't been on the show before. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening in. My name is Daniel Spicer, and I'm the Chief Security Officer here at Avanti. I focus on security in, in all shapes here, whether it is uh, corporate security or security of our products. But I have a natural interest and a background in security, especially in incident response and um, trying to <laughs> figure out how a security issue actually happened in the first place. Awesome. Thanks, Daniel. So for those of you who may have been out at some of the recent uh, trade show events. We just uh, got back from the RSA event in California and uh, in DC, where I was at last week. We also got back from the Gartner cybersecurity event. And we thought it would be a good idea to chat about, uh, well, one, you know, getting back into the swing of things, getting actually back out in front of people was interesting. But Daniel, I saw a few trends and other things here that I wanted to pick your brain on today. And I think some of our listeners will be interested as well. Let me start by just saying for both ends of the country here in the US, uh, we had uh, some interesting returns to the face-to-face events in the cybersecurity space. I was keeping in touch with my colleagues that were out at RSA and they were talking about the volumes there were feeling like, you know, truly like pre-COVID level. People were out, they were interacting, they were excited to actually be face-to-face with uh, their peers and uh, organizations again. In DC, it felt very much the same, especially in the first uh, opening day and a half. I think it felt really good to, to get in out there and do that again. It became very apparent though that like for all the sessions that you went to and everything, all of the Gartner presenters were told to really be excited about getting back to face-to-face because you started to on day three, day four, every single session still started with, God, it's great to be back and in person and so excited to be here. And like, it's like, okay, how many times did you have to repeat that already this week? So I think it was a good return to actually interacting in the space again. Now, Daniel, I think there were a couple of interesting trends that came up, especially I attended an analyst session at uh, the Gartner event that talked about eight different predictions. And I'm going to touch on a few of those today. Now, just to preface this, these were not yet official Gartner predictions. We'll see if they become, you know, official at some point here. But uh, I thought they were a great kind of dialogue that we could have here today. The first one is around zero trust. So they came out saying that uh, in the next few years, about 60% of organizations are going to attempt to implement zero trust and half will fail to recognize the benefits of zero trust. So Daniel, I think the first thing right off the bat is, do you believe that 60% of organizations are going to attempt to implement zero trust in the next two years? I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that's very likely considering how much attention it's received, not only in the market, but also from government agencies. You look at the Biden administration really forcing that zero trust down. And as we talked previously on the show, anything that comes from the U.S. federal government like that has a downward effect that eventually pushes to much wider 
portion of the of the market rather than just defense contractors and government organizations. And we're seeing similar requirements come out of other um, countries. So I, I think it makes a lot of sense that a lot of people will try to implement zero trust. I guess the challenges with getting benefit is definitely in the prep work. I don't know that a lot of organizations fully understand what zero trust is. I think we're still wrapping our heads around it ourselves sometimes. And um, especially in the networking side, I, w- I want to touch on that a little bit because a lot of organizations are simply not ready today to go ZTNA, right? There's a lot of pre-work that you have to do with network configuration in order to get the full benefit. If you can't properly isolate the individual applications from each other and perform a good micro-segmentation across your environment, you don't really gain that benefit because at the end of the day, you start falling back into a layer three and then you didn't make a real improvement between a traditional VPN appliance compared to a zero trust network access solution. No, I think you're spot on and that kind of matches with, so I spent the rest of the week really trying to find some conversations to pick people's brains about how they felt trying to achieve zero trust could be challenging within organizations. So I think one, the definition did come up regularly. What is the definition of zero trust? It really, it's not a technology, it is a strategy. And to your point, if you haven't done some of that foundational groundwork, it's going to be very difficult to recognize those benefits. So you touched on the networking side and the micro-segmentation. The one that I found with a couple of conversations with a few of this analyst peers throughout the rest of the week was around applications and who should have access to them. So how many organizations actually know, here's all the applications that we run into our environment? Even more so, how many of those organizations can actually understand who should have access to that and uh, you know actually map that out? Now, how most organizations, again, getting feedback from the different analysts that I interacted with, how most organizations are tackling that today is basically putting the ZTNA solution into a learning mode and seeing what are all the software titles that are being accessed and Who are all the people that are accessing them and getting a baseline? How accurate is that baseline? Are those people supposed to have access to those applications? Is there anything that we've now grandfathered in that's already inaccurate right off the bat? And I think, Daniel, this you and I have talked about the identity lifecycle many times before, but onboarding and offboarding a user is just part of the problem. There's all the different transitions that user may make during their life within an organization their role will change. What they need access to will change. All of those things are a foundational piece of securely granting access to, you know, of users to applications, like getting to that pure ZTNA definition. So absolutely, I think the fundamentals are a strong part of what I gathered from conversations that I had throughout the rest of the week last week around how could ZTNA fail to be recognized from a value perspective. Now, Identity, that kind of shifts us into my next question for you, Daniel. Identity is critical to securing your environment. It's easy to social engineer users to gain access to their credentials. I I actually went to five different vendors, all focusing on the same thing around passwordless authentication. And it got to the point where it was very diluted. And most organizations are going to have a hard time navigating that. So my question to you is, when you're dealing with a technology space like this, 
how are you sifting through when the the value proposition from all these vendors get to the point where it's almost identical? How are you sifting through that to try to really understand who is the identity or the vendor I should pick? Now, in my case, the example was identity was the set of vendors I was looking at. But this really, as I walked around the show floor, it was happening in a number of spaces. Even the ZTNA vendors started to sound quite a bit alike. A little bit of differentiation about what they were doing, but tell me a little bit about how do you get to a clear definition and truly start to weed out vendors as you're evaluating them? So again, uh, I'm going to talk about the importance of preparation again. I think the first thing you have to do is you're really trying to solve before you start talking to vendors. That makes it easier for you to ask smart questions and start shrinking down that that list of vendors. There are going to be differences between the vendors. Otherwise, there's no reasons for so many players in this. So there's either going to be some kind of implementation difference or some kind of feature functionality difference. And you have your objectives and your use cases before you really talk to these vendors. Otherwise, you're just going to end up running in circles. Now, if you can afford to take a bit of a hit to your mailbox in terms of how many responses you get, sometimes it helps to talk to some vendors up front just to get an idea for the field. And then that can actually feed in to help you narrow down your use cases. You'll get harassed by vendors. But sometimes having that idea generation will actually help you further narrow that down. But truthfully, once I'm down to my last two or three vendors, I really like doing bake-offs. And I think in doing that helps you kind of weed through like some of the real-life challenges for onboarding, some of the places where (laughs) maybe the feature doesn't fully work as it was prescribed to you. And we actually did something very similar when we were changing our MDR vendor here at Avanti, we started with a very large pool of vendors who all claim to do managed detection and response. But everyone truthfully has a different way of doing it. They have different teams, different strategies to handling alerts, different um, technology in the back end for correlation. And so at the end of the day, Once we narrowed down through interviews to uh, the select couple of vendors, the best thing to do was to really put them through a a trial and make sure that their technology did exactly what it said it was going to do, and it met our use cases. And at the end of that, we did have a true clear winner. I know that bake-offs can be time-consuming, but when you think about how long some of these products or services sit in your environment and how important they are, to your overall strategy, it's definitely worth the time investment. So speaking of MDR, there was another prediction in that session I went to on MDR. And so here's what they were challenging. By 2025, 50% of organizations will be using MDR services for threat monitoring. So you and I have talked about this a little bit, but I think it's interesting to really, you know, for everybody to hear why does trying to achieve implementing EDR in an organization fail? And how is MDR, why is this uh, number so high? 50% of organizations are going to be adopting MDR services. Why are they driving that heavily towards that? So I'll be honest, number might be a little low. Uh, And the reason really comes down to uh, there's still quite a few organizations who haven't realized the difference between uh, an EDR solution and a traditional antivirus solution. At the end of the day, once you really configure antivirus, you have updates configured, you have your risk tolerance levels configured, 
you just listen out for alerts, right? And as long as you're monitoring those alerts and responding to them, you're in a good spot. And EDR works nothing like that. EDR is tracking all of the events on your systems at all times, and they don't really do anything with that data. There's some alert matching, there's some pattern, there's some components of traditional antivirus in there. But at the end of the day, that data is the customer's responsibility to shift through and determine what's good and what's bad. And therein lies the rub. You have to have a dedicated individual or two looking at the EDR solution at all times, which is completely implementation configuration of that can be a side job. So I think that's really the root cause of um, going to that MDR solution um, because that service gives you the eyes on glass and especially in that 24-7 capacity to really make sure that your systems are being watched over at all times. This is one of those things where, you know, organizations, especially as you go down market, getting into that mid market and lower, they're being targeted as frequently as large enterprises when it comes to things like ransomware. So EDR is absolutely important to them as well. But, you know, without the staffing, without the, the skill set to be able to implement it yourself, MDR is going to be important for those organizations to achieve any level of threat hunting. Now, I think the other thing here is, uh, you know, this is really a big data problem at the end of the day, right? You need to have more information to be able to properly spot attacks and not have uh, the false positives that could occur. And having more data means you're going to need more eyes on the problem. So having that MDR to supplement your own staff as well for those mid-market and up definitely makes a lot of sense. Yeah, what's actually really interesting here is it's not just a false positive problem, but it's also finding true anomalies, right? When you consider EDR to be a big data problem, when you have enough good data from a large number of customers, you actually can find anomalies faster as well. And so all the organizations of a particular MDR service actually benefit from that big data problem that the MDR providers are solving because they are encouraged, right, to to shift through that data as fast as possible. And that means they're going to find anomalies in your environment specifically faster, even though it's not showing up in another environment, because they now see that it's not just an anomaly in your environment, it's an anomaly from all other of their customers' environments. So it, it's not just a false positive, but it's also a true positive benefit as well. All right, I'm going to shift gears on you a little bit here. We're going to speak in a little bit of a different direction. One of the additional predictions that were in that session was that by 2025, 40% of boards of directors will have a dedicated cybersecurity committee within that board of directors umbrella. Now, saying that, that puts a little bit more on all of our listeners here. What are some things that they should be preparing for? What are the types of messaging that they're going to want to make sure that they're prepared to be able to roll up to the board? What type of visibility is this going to mean for that board coming into the broader organization? That's a a really interesting prediction. I I think the first thing I'm going to say is I think the number is a bit high. And I say that because, believe it or not, 2025 isn't actually that far away. And we're still trying to get into this position where we're educating boards um, about cybersecurity. I think that trying to create dedicated committees within them, we're not going to be at 40% to them because they're just not prepared for this. But I think the other thing that I would say is I don't believe that we would have a board dedicated to cybersecurity 
as much as maybe myself and a lot of our listeners may want. I think it'll be a little bit more combined because cybersecurity on its own doesn't answer the board's questions. At the end of the day, the pair is about risk and the risk that cybersecurity brings to the organization that they're the board of. So I think it'll end up being a combined risk or an expanded risk committee that includes more details about cybersecurity. But I I bet you we're going to see a little bit of privacy come in as well. I've said this on other podcasts, the speed at which the privacy regulation landscape is shifting and how that is requiring uh, security teams and just organizational operationals to change to meet those requirements coming down um, to operate in certain regions. It's just, it is extremely fast. And so I, I suspect that this will be some kind of combination between those two. But that said, that's not quite your question. Your question is, what do we have to do to prepare, right? And I think that the best way to prepare for this in any way is to make sure you have good metrics and good KPI. And I encourage our listeners to think about two types of KPIs, if you will. The indicators and the metrics that we use to measure success are not necessarily the same as what a board or a C-suite will use to, to manage success. You have to find a middle ground between those to make sure that you have the indicators that help you understand where you need to make tactical improvements and changes. You need a different set of indicators to help drive influence on convincing them to put certain investment into security programs or privacy programs so that they improve on a larger scale. And those KPIs are just different. All right. We're going to wrap here for today. One thing I do want to remind everybody of is this was all part of a session that a couple of the analysts uh, did at the event last week. I thought they were a great way to really kind of drive some discussions around this. And uh, really, it was a couple of good, interesting points that I think are relevant for a lot of people in either their processes that they're trying to improve within their organizations the next year here, things that should be on top of mind if they're not already for, for a lot of organizations. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. First of all, informative that those of you who weren't able to get out to any of these events, the the world seems to be getting back to face-to-face level, and it really did feel like that being out at that event last week. For those of you who are interested, you can also follow us at GoAvanti, follow us on social media, and always keep up to date with new episodes and events that we've got coming out here at Avanti. Thank you again for everything, and uh, thanks, Daniel, for joining us today. Mm-hmm.